Welcome to Boston Venue, the Channel Podcast. This is the true and complete story of the legendary Boston Music Club, The Channel. From its shaky launch in one of Boston's grittiest neighborhoods, through the glory years of beer rock, punk, and reggae shows, from an incredible roster of artists, and its demise at the hands of local mobsters after a spectacular run. A demise that ultimately led to a murder that would take 25 years to solve. This podcast includes explicit language and violent episodes. No sugarcoating and no bullshit. Let's rock. The channel, still known as Channel One at the time, opened on May 30th, 1980. Despite formidable challenges from all local power players, including cops, Southie Hoods, and the entrenched hierarchy of the Boston live music scene, the first weekend, which featured local headliners, the Neighborhoods, was successful. The team breathed a collective sigh of relief as their ultra-risky social experiment appeared to be working. For now. On July 11th, 1980, Ernie Santosuoso of the Boston Globe wrote, Henceforth, Channel One, the recently opened economy-sized rock club at 25 Neko Street near South Station, will be known simply as The Channel. The name change, motivated by a show of good faith by co-owner Harry Boris, came about after a Newton firm, also doing business as Channel One, was deluged with hundreds of phone calls and requests for concert information. We thought it was a big setback. Reintroduce the club under a new name. We thought uh, that might be a difficult task going forward. But we decided to make the most out of it and maybe create a brand around the channel. So I was walking down the Boston Public Gardens one afternoon and I noticed the swan boats on the lagoon and I noticed the reflection. So I went back into the club and I asked Richard Clements, one of uh, my partners, to help me with an idea that I had about developing a logo for the channel. Richard was a very accomplished amateur photographer. He had a high-end camera and a darkroom. So we basically got stick-on fonts, then we pasted them on a piece of cardboard, and then we got an inverted barrel cover. We filled it with water and put the channel rendering on the cardboard on top of it, shook the wobbly table, and created a reflection on it. So Rich shot a bunch of shots in high-speed black-and-white film, and he made a couple of contact sheets, and we picked out the best ones, and uh, through a series of you know, photographic manipulations, we selected one, and we got a negative of it, cut it down to the proper size, and later on, Lisa St. John designed the slug that appeared below the picture, Boston's Best Live Rock. And that's the way the channel logo was born. The first 60 days of music was an impressive run. Rock and roll royalty like Levon Helm and Joe Cocker. New Wave, punk, and post-punk bands like The Feelies, The Stranglers, and Johnny Thunders. And local heroes, Mission of Burma, The Stompers, The Atlantics, and John Butcher Axis, to mention a few rising Boston headliners and there was no shortage of emerging Boston bands that were capturing national attention. Charlie Farron, veteran of Boston supergroup Fahrenheit and the Joe Perry Project, recalls that time. The Channel, yeah, that was the place to play. And if you could headline at the Channel, you had arrived. 
I've had many memorable shows with my bands, Balloon and Fahrenheit at the channel. And people would come to the channel who were touring and playing in Boston would come. A couple of times the Beach Boys came down. Our manager, Peter Lembo, was friendly with them and he'd go see them at the tent on the waterfront and bring them back to the channel and hang out in the dressing room with us. Eddie Money came down a couple of times. So we played the channel many, many times. One of the more memorable times is we did the the Boston tour in 1987. And it was 85 to 90 sold out shows in probably I don't know maybe 40 cities many of the cities were three and four nights we played in Boston at the Worcester Centrum now it's the DCU Center and we played there nine nights but we played all summer and then we took a break at, at Christmas time and during that break Fahrenheit had a sold out show at the channel and it was just off the hook crazy great there was always something special about a performance at the channel headliners were pretty much all the bookings that we could get. It was almost impossible to get even availabilities for touring acts. So we reached out and uh, Joe, who originally owned the showboat before it became the channel, had a connection with a guy named uh, Frank J. Russo, who was a promoter in Providence, Rhode Island. He was uh, interested in getting a foothold in Boston, so we set up a deal where he would book some shows, some national shows at the channel. So out of the, I don't know, maybe eight shows that he booked, six, six of them were pretty much losers, including Johnny Cougar in the Zone, who later became John Mellencamp. Uh, ultimately, we figured that we had to do this on our own, and that's what we set out to do. But it wasn't easy. There were entrenched powers on the scene in 1980s Boston that had to be dealt with, and some of them were less than welcoming to the new kid on the block. The most threatening to the new venue? Don Law. Remember the guy who sent the magnum of champagne? Don Law, through his company Tea Party Concerts, dominated concert promotion in Boston. He had exclusive deals with all the key venues in the city, the Orpheum, the Paradise, and the Boston Garden. Those three facilities hosted the vast majority of major live rock events in the city. Law also booked big-name rock shows in a club complex on Lansdowne Street known as Metro and Spit. The Metro was primarily a disco dance club with a similar capacity to the channel that occasionally hosted big-name concerts in the hours before the dance crowd showed up. So the shows at the Metro uh, got out early, and uh, for the most part, the ticket prices were high. So rather than hurt us, uh, those shows actually helped us. On our opening night, which was May 30th, the Metro had as headliners the Psychedelic First, 
That show actually helped us. A lot of the people that got out from that show were are part of our opening night crowd. As a matter of fact, we sent a couple of uh, guys down there to spread the word about the new club across town. Don Law and his organization used the local media, agencies, and exclusive deals with both artists and management to keep competitors at bay. Chachi LePret was the promotion coordinator at WBCN during its 80s heyday and saw Law's operation firsthand. Concert promoters, back then it was a very, very competitive business. There were other smaller level promoters, but Don Law and his company were the tops. They controlled a lot of the music business that came in and out of town, and certainly they were competitive. So WBCN did concert promotions with virtually all of these concerts that came into town. The Boston Garden, the Orpheum Theater, Metro on Lansdowne Street, uh, The Rat, Bunratties, The Paradise. I mean, we promoted and worked on all these shows and venues. So almost every show that we did, there was also other promotions attached to it. Winners going backstage, winners sitting in the front row, winners standing on stage, winners participating in the show uh, that was set up through the Don Law Company and the band. Don Law was eager to make an exclusive agreement with the channel, but the team soon realized that the deal was one-sided, and it sure as shit wasn't their side. Law's deal would only guarantee us 26 shows per year. The rest of the nights were up to us to fill with local headliners. And if the local band got signed, Don Law would then have exclusive rights to that band too. Negotiations were tense, and it went on well past the opening weekend. In the end, the team decided not to work with Don Law. They figured that no deal was better than a bad deal. So for the next uh, decade plus, Don Law did everything in his power to put us out of business. So Law controlled the city's stages. But what about the city's airwaves? Anyone in the business of rock and roll in 1980s Boston needed WBCN radio. The Rock of Boston. BCN was the city's FM powerhouse. And when the station was behind an event, it was almost guaranteed to be a success. The BCN DJs all knew the power the station held, and they'd use their status to score paid MC gigs. The venue paid BCN's DJs generous talent fees and received on-air promo mentions in return. Carter Allen, a longtime Boston DJ and music director on both WBCN and classic rocker WZLX, is also a music historian and author of several rock and roll histories. My first channel show was on July 24th, 1980 with Robert Ellis Oral. And a lot of the concerts I saw there were, you know, local shows. The Atlantics played there in September 80. Beaver Brown, the Tweeds, American Teen and the Trademarks played there. And I do remember... In uh, WBCN, when I first started working there in 1979, they had the Rock and Roll Rumble, 24 local bands competing, which continues to this day. The following year, 1980, because of my local music connections, they asked me to run the Rumble because Oedipus was on the air full time and he couldn't do it anymore. So I started running the Rumble. 1981, COZ, who were in direct competition with WBCN, decided to put on their own battle of the bands. And it was at the same time as the BCN one. And we got really upset about that. It was the challenge, the COZ challenge at the channel. I do remember getting our 24 bands and making them sign contracts so that they would not play the challenge. So that went on. That was drama that happened in 1981. I, I do believe the Stompers won that competition for COZ. I remember going down there a couple of nights. I mean, 
A battle is a battle, and competition is competition, and ratings are ratings. So some great times at the channel. Seeing James Brown there was amazing. I was a guest DJ on New Music Nights down there starting in March of 1981. So uh, anytime there was local bands, or new bands rather, playing there, uh, I would provide the music in between. I'd spin music between the bands. BCN had the power to make or break an up-and-coming band, like Gang of Four. We were trying to break through to different national agencies to get some availabilities for touring acts. It was very difficult. It seemed that Law had this attitude with most of the booking agents that he should just get any act that he wanted. So we got an avail for a band called Gang of Four from England. They were a punk band with a social justice kind of a vibe. They were on a national tour. The money was steep, but both the agent and Warren, the booking agent, thought it was a good move to get our foot in with the agency and establish a relationship and possibly do more shows in the future. So we put an offer in, giving them all the money they wanted, and uh, before the end of the day, we got a verbal confirmation that uh, the show was ours. Uh, we put it on sale, and uh, we were pretty excited about it. The next day, we got a call that uh, the show was uh, going to be canceled, and they were going to play the Paradise Club instead. So, you know, I got a little bit upset, obviously, and I, I called the agency. The name of the agency was FBI, Frontier Booking International. And I asked to speak to the owner, uh, Ian Copeland, which I did. This was a big deal. Ian Copeland was the head of FBI, Frontier Booking International, and also brother of Stuart Copeland, drummer of the legendary rock power trio, The Police. Phyllis Crane was the office manager at the channel and remembers the episode with Gang of Four. I remember that there was panic because it happened so late. And the way you reacted to it was pretty much the way you reacted to a lot of things was I have to do something about this and I have to do something about it now. And you managed to make the right decision at the right time and save an event. Yeah, so Ian Copeland had no problem telling me the reason that they canceled the show was that Don Law had said that uh, if the show played the channel, BCN would drop the band from regular rotation. I didn't think that was right, and uh, so I reached out to WBCN, talked to uh, the general manager at the time, a guy named Tony Berardini, and uh, he did the right thing. He basically said that uh, nobody had a right to tell them who to play and who not to play, and that uh, he would call Copeland and tell him that that, that wasn't the way it was going to be. So the next day, I took an air shuttle to New York with a certified check in my pocket for uh, the deposit that was required. I went over to their office uh, on Broadway, and I met with Ian Copeland, who was very supportive, and I left there with a signed contract in my pocket. FBI ended up being a stalwart uh, supporter uh, of the channel, and we bought many acts from him over the years, including Joe Jett, The Go-Go's, Steel Pulse, uh, English Beat, uh, many others. BCN's power and reach was immense. Take the first B-52 show. The club was offered a date for the widely popular band. Long before they struck platinum with the Nile Rodgers-produced Love Shack, the B-52s were a culty, off-kilter surf rock band from Athens, Georgia. They were a national draw, and they were well-managed, and they wanted 20 grand for a 60-minute set. There were two stipulations. One was that the show would happen in exactly one week on a Tuesday night. The second, no advertising. 
we were expected to sell the show out using grassroots stuff, stuff on the street, like uh, flyers and posters and, you know, buzzed word on the street. There was actually a uh, service called the Fly Distribution Service where uh, this guy used to hire homeless people to go around downtown in downtown Boston and uh, Kemmore Square and other in, in college areas and pass uh, flies around for different shows. So that and uh, the buzz on the street, uh, that's what we were expected to use to sell the show out. If the B-52's camp caught wind of the channel promoting the show with any paid advertising, the show would be canceled. Why would they do such a thing? To maintain indie cred? The allure of mysteriousness? To undermine the machinations of a greedy musical industrial complex and its legions of vampiric A&R men who bled artists dry? Who the fuck knows? I personally thought law was behind it. Who the fuck indeed? The team got around the ban on paid advertising by calling in some favors from BCN. It only took a couple of on-air drive-time mentions to get the buzz going. Tickets also went on sale at Strawberries, Newbury Comics, and the out-of-town ticket agency in Harvard Square. And someone even drove down to Strawberries Records on Washington Street in downtown Boston and put up posters. The show sold out. We mentioned earlier how a single ad in the Boston Phoenix led to a ton of foot traffic for the channel. That's because, in 1980, the Phoenix dominated alternative and entertainment print media. The Phoenix personified free speech and artistic expression. It had top-tier award-winning features, op-eds, and photojournalism pieces that covered entertainment, politics, and social issues on both a national and local level. It also had... The Phoenix's Classifieds. Whatever you were looking for, you could find in those classifieds. A punk band looking for a bass player. A professional escort looking for a hot date. Boys looking for girls. Boys looking for boys. Girls looking for girls dressed like boys. The Classifieds satisfied every kink and need in those pre-internet days. So with a healthy cash flow from advertising and an award-winning editorial staff, the Phoenix was killing it in the early 80s. There would be Providence and Portland editions, and Phoenix Radio, in the form of influential alternative rocker WFNX, was on the horizon. Sitting at the top of this complicated empire was Stephen Mindich, founder and CEO of Phoenix Media and Communications Group. Mindich was a colorful chain smoker who lived in a gated mansion on Beacon Hill with his wife, celebrity judge Maria Lopez. Brad Mindich, Stephen's son, remembers his dad. He really was a maverick and a true entrepreneur. You know, his complete commitment to journalistic excellence, you know, really beginning at the time when, you know, during the Vietnam War and, and all of that and, and being committed to covering things in what would obviously later be known as alternative journalism. Because of that, he allowed so many people, so many journalists to really explore things and get involved with things and stay committed to all of the things that were part of his goal right from the very beginning. So Don Law ruled the stages, BCN ruled the airwaves, and the Phoenix dominated alternative print media. There were some other big swinging dicks in Boston that the channel management had to deal with too. We've already seen a painful example of the police's power to hurt the new business after Sergeant Johnson was rebuffed in his demand to be the channel's security consultant. Things had gotten testy. Peter Boris, longtime general manager, recalls some of those encounters. 
uniformed and undercover cops from the drug unit would come in on a pretty regular basis. They would check for the capacity, and then they would go in the club, and they would do random ID checks to uh, kids that may have looked underage. The narcs had plenty of potential targets at the new scene-making nightclub. Drugs were very much a part of the music scene. They pervaded the music scene back in the 80s. The roadies would smoke joints when they were loading in. Uh, cocaine was a big part to a very, a, a lot of bands really liked cocaine. We had euphemisms that uh, when bands would ask uh, for uh, cocaine on their riders, uh, it would even uh, be a special deli platter or uh, one of the terms was we have to do the right thing with this band and that usually meant uh, getting them an eight ball of cocaine. For the most part, the narcs weren't interested in the end user, you know, roadie, performer or customer. They were there uh, keeping their eye open to try to find the guys that were responsible for dealing kilos of cocaine throughout the city. Tom Flaherty, a Southie resident who also owned a local watering spot, the Cornerstone Cafe, was the area's city fire inspector. He would always ask the capacity, ask how many people we have in the room, and then he'd say, come on, take a walk with me. So we would walk around and check the exits to make sure that all the doors were free of any obstructions, especially backstage, because backstage they used to stack the uh, road cases in front of the emergency exits. And whenever he saw that, he would hit the roof, you know. While the channel had quickly become a scene unto itself, there was still a lingering darkness shadowing the bright lights of those halcyon days. The club was making money, there were thousands in cash on the premises every night. The locals were taking notice. Money and drugs tend to attract unsavory characters at the most inconvenient times. So the Southie wise guys never really left us alone. They engaged in turf wars at the channel. So we had hired this guy who was a head of security, and he was a real hard ass. And one night, him and a couple of our security guys beat the shit out of this patron. Cops were called, and there was incident reports and everything. So we just decided that we were going to fire this guy. We always believed that it was important to contain the situation, not add to it by using force and violence to subdue people. So we fired him. Apparently, he had hired three or four, maybe five, of those Southie wise guys that was threatening us at the beginning. And they staged a massive walkout. They said that if this guy was gone, they would all walk out and we'd be left without any security for an upcoming busy weekend. In much of 80s Boston, Southie residents ruled, literally. Ray Flynn was the mayor. Jimmy Kelly was the head of the city council. Billy Bulger was the Senate president, and his brother, James Whitey Bulger, well, you know what he was about. But there were other, less visible players who still wielded considerable power from Government Center, the North End, and other neighborhoods who were destined to play pivotal roles in the future of the channel. The channel was making it, and with success comes a price. Everyone wants a piece. Some are willing to do whatever it takes to get that piece. On the next episode, the channel makes a big splash, and guys with nicknames like The Animal, Moshi, Dapper, and Cadillac Frank take notice.
Boston venue, The Channel Story, was conceived and created by Harry Boris. Executive producer, David Ginsberg. Produced by Chachi LaPrette. Written by Christopher O'Keefe. Contributing writers, Harry Boris and David Ginsberg. Recording engineer, Tori Lamb. Audio production by Tony Baglio and Dan Tebow. Storytellers in this episode were Charlie Farron, Chachi LaPrette, Carter Allen, Phyllis Eakins Crane, and Peter Boris. Music featured in this episode, Lost in Loveland, was provided by Fahrenheit. Intro music by John Butcher Axis. I'm your narrator, John Laurenti. Don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends to check us out at thechannelstory.com or on Facebook, Boston Venue, The Channel Story. Leave your comments and share your stories.